This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time to talk about all things municipal. And today, it's some dog lovers who are barking mad about a city sign that went up in a local off-leash park. This sign warned that, quote, excessive barking will not be tolerated. Now, the sign was taken down in a matter of hours. As a matter of fact, I would be thrilled if there were other complaints that were resolved that quickly. But the outrage and ridicule on social media and around water coolers is still going strong. And it is worth a good chuckle. But there's a history of conflict between dog lovers and people who are afraid of dogs. And that is no laughing matter. Edward Keenan wrote about it in The Star, and we will talk about it. We'll also catch up with the latest on the mayoral race, which has not officially begun. Numbers to call people, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor at BlogTO. Okay, so, you know, uh, the reaction to this, uh, you know, <laughs> dog story, which lasted for two hours, is, uh, is it a little outsized, Lauren? I mean, it is pretty silly. Uh, I think you mentioned Edward Keenan's article. Um, it's like posting a no laughter sign at a comedy club. Like, it, there are dogs around. There is going to be barking. Um, I, I think that people just kind of glommed onto this story and held it up as an example of bureaucracy gone mad. Um, but I do understand also there are a lot of issues historically involving the dog park community dog owners and other members of the community. So um, like you said, it kind of tapped into a nerve there. But I, I like also, it's great that it was solved so quickly too. Like when does the city ever change something that fast? But I want to point and out- And take responsibility take saying we we missed the mark on this. Right? But we had um, a reader send us a photo this morning at BlogTO. Um, a similar sign already exists in Allen Gardens Park. It has for years. So the sign that um, was of question this week was in St. Andrew's Park. It was like- uh, Adelaide Spadina area. Um, but there have been others in the city, apparently. Uh, not really sure why or how the city expects people to stop their dogs from from vocalizing, from barking. But um, we know, at least in this case of the most recent one, it was in response to complaints about too many dogs. Too many well, dogs being loud. Okay, this is, this is from the column. It says, in some cases, these conflicts over... Uh, the behavior, let's call it, in these off-leash parks um, have inspired not just regular shouting matches, but it's pet poisonings. And there have been stories about pet poisoning, bags of poop launched onto people's lawns, couples divorcing over noise, tires being slashed, and neighbors mover, moving because they can't tolerate the dogs. Karen? Oh, yes. 
this is honestly the dog park issue is a, is 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 one of the hottest municipal councilor issues that you can it's one of the hottest potatoes you can hold. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was at Ledbury Park, there was a petition brought forward to install an off leash dog park at the park, you know, away from where the kids played, away from the skating rink, um, and in a sort of cul-de-sac area. So we went forward with it. Well, no sooner did we go forward with it when people called my house on a regular basis because they were the neighbors that backed their fences were uh, backing onto where the off-leash park now was. And there was, you know, noise and people and dogs and ruckus and upset and, oh my goodness. So yeah, we had to move the dog park short of, I think the dog park was only there for less than two months before we moved it because it was just creating so much tension in the neighborhood. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a two-way street, you know, um, uh, because it's the dog owners sometimes that are very rude to the people who like, don't, don't want to be bothered by the dogs. David, was this an issue when you were the mayor? Uh, no, no, not well. From time to time, the dogs have been barking for as long as we've had dogs, uh, so and that bothers some people. I think it's quite impressive on the part of the city staff that they thought they could actually stop dogs from barking. Uh, so I was impressed. I hope I hope they keep the sign. Don't don't destroy the sign. It it, it should be uh, somewhere hung in city hall. Just a reminder of how silly it can get. Uh, so. No, it was not a big issue when I, uh, when, when I was about. But on the other hand, I think I have to say that we've learned far better manners about dogs and people in the past number of years than we ever did before. Um, and, that, and that started with the Poop and Scoop program, all of those things. So actually, it's one area of progress that we've made, uh, I think, and, 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 at least from, from my own limited experience. Well, and it, it did remind me. Sorry? I'm, I'm sort of saying, never mind the dogs, it's the people. And, and if it gets to dog poisonings and altercations and throwing poop on a lawn, I mean, that is uh, not very civil. No, it's not very civil, and it's not very often. Uh, I, I, it, seem, it, it, it seems to me that dog issues I used to regard as something that people could get their arms around, and therefore uh, there was more talk than, than, than harm done by it. But on the other hand, I read Keenan's uh, uh, column. He, he's, a, he's a really good writer in my, in my judgment. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's, uh, he's more right than I thought he thought he, thought he was. But no, I uh, we've got so many problems in the city that need to be dealt with, and I and I think we we can talk about dogs. Everybody's an expert on dogs. Okay, well, Karen, uh, one of the things it said about dogs is that it's the one issue that councillors don't even want to get involved with. Is that right? Or the, oh, it, no question about it. No question about it. Honestly, when someone calls about a dog park issue, you just pretend you hear like, beep, please leave a message. <laughs> because, you know, the issue, you know, because I live in Midtown and there's a lot of dogs in Midtown and, and limited parks and lots of kids. And, uh, you know, I think the key that, you know, everyone's kind of talked around is, you know, good manners. And when dog owners have good manners, everything works out. You know, yeah, when you yeah. go to the park at six in the morning and you're gone by 730, everything's fine. When you're there on a Saturday afternoon and you let your dog off leash at Eglinton Park during the soccer, kids' soccer practice, then you're a bozo, and then that sets people off, and rightly so. <laughs> you're a bozo. <laughs> okay. Uh, don't, don't, don't call them bozos. Uh, let's move along to the unofficial 
mayor's race. Okay, so uh, we had a couple kind of newish things happen. We had a, an intervention or a letter from the friends of Matlow, of Josh Matlow, uh, and full disclosure, he is my counselor in Ward 12. And who are the friends of Matlow? Well, not the people who work with him on council, because that is the biggest strike against him that I always hear, that he just doesn't play well with others. However, that letter was signed by an impressive number of well-known progressives, including former Mayor John Sewell, street nurse Kathy Crow, and the former chair of the Federation of Metro Tenants Association. So, uh, Lauren, do you think that he might emerge as the, quote, progressive candidate? I mean, he's saying at this point that he's still considering whether or not he'll run for mayor in the first place, and he has to discuss it with his family and stuff. But I, the fact that this Friends of Matt Lau letter has come out, I think kind of spoils it in that, yeah, like he's clearly considering it. Um, whether or not this letter was unprompted from his supporters, I'm not really sure. I wouldn't if, imagine it was. Right. But, uh, like, I mean, there's got to be something going on behind these scenes there. So, yeah, I really do think that. I think he will emerge as the as the leading progressive candidate. He's got name recognition. Um, he clearly has a lot of support from some prominent figures and on that kind of side of the political spectrum. So I, I think that um, he might just be doing a little bit of lip service and saying he's still considering whether or not to throw his hat in the ring. I mean, nominations have yet to open, but I think when they do, we'll definitely see him in the ring. Uh, Karen, what do you think? Yeah, I think he is. Um, you know, this is now this, this period of time between when you can officially put your name on the ballot in four weeks from now is sort of the primary season. So this is when, you know, everyone puts their hand up and says, I'm interested in running. And then they spend the next four weeks figuring out who's going to really support them and if they can raise the money. And so I think this is Matt Lowe's signal that he does want to run. I think he's now going to run into problems with financing because, as far as I understand, Anna has the unions locked. And um, although Matt Lowe may see himself as a progressive, I don't know that the other progressives, progressives on council view him that way. And so it, um, you know, he's certainly, again, stepped forward with a show of strength with his letter. Um, but when push comes to shove, I'm not sure he's going to get enough institutional support to launch a campaign and get the money that's required for a short campaign that, yeah. that this is. I, I don't know what kind of support he has in the ward. He had a big plurality, but he doesn't seem to be interested in the stuff that the people in the ward are interested in. David, yeah. it, again, in, in terms of him, I mean, it seems to me that one of the key requirements for a mayor of any political stripe is to have to make nice with the other levels of government uh, and with whoever else. And I'm just not sure that that's his personality. Well, I, my, my, my contact with him is uh, always uh, uh, friendly and, and open. And it's my, I don't have an understanding, and I'm saying it's not true, but I don't have an understanding that he doesn't play nice. He's pretty clear about his, where his positions on issues are. I think he's. I think it's also clear to me that he's running, or he wouldn't have gotten those people, uh, and those people wouldn't have come forward. And I think it has to be said that at least these are organizations that do good work in the city, uh, and, and and are are legitimate and and serious organizations. So I think he's running. I think he's trying to stake out the ground uh, that he thinks is going to be helpful to his cause, and that's what he thinks is the progressive, the progressive part of society. And so. I, I I don't I don't see that he's doing anything 
wrong. I think people who don't like him or don't want to remarry, they're already out there saying no to him or, uh, or, or arguing that he doesn't have, uh, he shouldn't be running. But I think he's probably making the right steps if he's going to run. And my guess is he's going to run. Uh, on the other end of the uh, ideological spectrum, we have Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday saying he might run. He's a conservative. Uh, how would you see his chances, Karen? Well, you know, I think he's probably banking on the Holiday name to have more traction than it probably does. And, um, you know, again, I I don't know what organization is behind him because I'm still hearing chatter that Mark Saunders might run. So if he's running on the conservative ticket, that that ticket might be crowded if Saunders is in. So uh, it'll be interesting. But, you know, everyone's, you know, bellyaching and Ford's like, oh, my God, we can't have a lefty in council. It'll be the end of the world. Well, it won't be, number one. And number two, at this point, you know, it doesn't really matter how many people enter the race. In the final weeks, it's going to narrow down to two. And so it, that's just the way these things shake out. Um, you know, there is a path where, you know, someone's going to win by 21%, but it, it's not likely it's going to shake out that way. Uh, Karen, you uh, already threw your support behind Brad Bradford. I did. I did. I see him as, um, you know, an interesting candidate with um, a, a vision for the city that I can get behind. And, uh, you know, he does have some institutional support that brings some legitimacy to his campaign. And, uh, you know, he's young and ambitious, and and uh, I could relate to a lot of things in his platform. What, what is his institutional uh, support? He's got, uh, you know, his uh, finance or his fundraising chair is Tim Hockey. And, uh, you know, he was a uh, former... Um, big wig at uh, TD Asset Management, I think. I'm probably getting it wrong, or Ameritrade. And he's a big funder, fundraiser for cancer uh, research and um, has a lot of connections uh, on Bay Street. So uh, certainly brings some credibility in that regard to his campaign. Hmm. Uh, and then, Lauren, we have uh, some outside people. So we, we have the former education minister, Mitzi Hunter, saying she might jump into the race. I mean, I at this point, it seems like there are a lot of people from many different backgrounds saying they might jump into the race. But I really can't make any sort of predictions or judgments until I know who's actually going to be in the race. But I, I do think that it's interesting to see more um, women, more female candidates throwing their hats in the ring, you know, on the back of International Women's Day. Um, yeah, I, I it's really hard just to kind of say who will emerge as a front runner at this point, if anyone, or if Mitzi would have a chance or not, because we don't know how many people, like Karen said, uh, Mark Saunders is still considering. So we don't even know who necessarily will be on the conservative ticket. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. That's, that's my view on it. Um, David, do you have a view about whether the person has to have experience on the council itself, or it could be someone like a Mitzi Hunter, and does she have enough name recognition? I mean, uh, I wonder about that. I, I think it's, uh, well, my view is that, that, that uh, when it comes to actually do, doing the job, I don't know about getting elected, but doing the job, not having council experience, I think is, 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 is unfortunate. I think the people, uh, unlike the party system at the other two levels, where a whole bunch of other people do your thinking for you. Uh, if you're on city council, you've got to be doing it yourself, and you need to know um, what how city council works, how the people within it work, how the staff, all those things you have to know to, in order to do the job. 
And I think that requires some experience. I might do a hitchhike on your question. Of, we were talking earlier about uh, progressive and not progressive and so on. All three of the people we were talking about earlier um, um, are, are members of the Liberal Party. Right. Just thought I'd mention it. I mean, uh, in Toronto, our, our, our ideological uh, uh, differences, our, our space between ideologies is pretty narrow. Well, exactly. Uh, because just... mainly, mainly because it, it, you have to pay attention to the issues and not just to sort of party glam. Well, yeah, and look at how many liberals do we have elected in Toronto at the federal level? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's everybody's a liberal. Uh, Karen, do you have a, a view about coming in from the outside, even if it is coming in as a former police chief or as a former cabinet minister? Yeah, I think, you know, up until the election of John Tory, I think that was a general rule that the mayor came from council. Um, but he, uh, you know, he broke that rule. Um you know, and Rob Ford did a little bit as well because he, you know, everybody didn't expect him to win because he didn't get along with anybody and um, was seen as an outsider. And so, you know, I think that the view has shifted in the general public around what it means to be mayor and what's expected of the mayor. And, um, you know, maybe being part of council isn't a requirement that people once understood it to be. Uh, so, uh in a few minutes, actually, after this panel, I'm going to be talking to the Deputy Mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, who took over. Uh, David, what would you see as the biggest priority for her to get done while she's still in the seat? To get done? Yeah. To maintain order. Both with council members, making sure that there are there are not people moving ahead of the election in a way which which is not accepted. She has, she has to be kind of a traffic cop uh, and a person who makes sure that the public is well served while the candidates are out there explaining why they should be mayor. So we depend on her to be solid, sensible, uh, and uh, making sure that the, that the council is up to its best reputation uh, while it's all going, all the electioneering is going on. Karen, what do you think she's got to be doing? Well, I mean, I have a bit of a bias because of my role and history with the TTC, but I really, I think she should um, advocate for clear direct funding for the TTC so the TTC does not become a campaign issue in in the election and uh, because we need funding for it and it's clear why we need it. And so I know the open letter was a strategy to get a billion dollars. Maybe she's not going to get a billion, but if she can be really crystal with why the TTC needs to be supported and the risks if it's not... Um, I think that would do quite a bit towards advancing that. Well, I'm going to be very curious to find out if she even got a, a, some kind of acknowledgement of yeah. of that letter uh, and to see where it goes, because uh, I would think that is a big headache for her is getting that money, Lauren. I, yeah, I think that's, I don't know what she should be doing, but I know that what she is doing is trying to secure the funding that was promised by the federal and provincial governments to help Toronto kind of recover from its post-COVID budgetary hangover. I mean, we're looking at a billion dollar budget deficit. And, and with that letter that she sent out to the uh, ministers of finance, for both the federal and provincial governments, it shows that she's, you know, she's holding them to account. And she's trying her best during her time as interim mayor to get Toronto the money it needs to do what it needs to do, whether that is for the TTC or the Housing Now initiatives. Um, it seems that she's really focused on securing the funding that we need. 
David, uh, you alluded earlier, there are a lot of things wrong in the city. Do you see any kind of improvement or uh, just everything just keeps going as it was? We still have a lot of this violence on the TTC. Uh, We have violence elsewhere as well. Well, yeah, I think there are a number of issues that will, I think, emerge during the campaign. I think most people's uh, ticket will be uh, housing and shelter affordability in the city. It's a, it's a, it's a just a, a uh, there's a large, large problem and that needs to be addressed. Uh, for me, and as you've heard me on this before, uh, infrastructure maintenance in the city is, is at, uh, I think, at a low. Uh, there was a time when someone once said, um, the city's been well run, uh, well run, the off times badly governed. Well, it's not as well run as it used to be. And you can see it being, uh, uh, rough at the edges right around the city. And I think that will become an issue because people understand it and, and, and will look for change in it. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, in the big, huge budget documents, there are cuts to all kinds of things and everybody's howling, but uh, there's still this billion dollar deficit. Lauren. Yeah. But, but, but my point is that they should be moving up maintenance of the city's infrastructure up higher uh, in in the list of things to do, and 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 therefore spend the money there. On the question of money generally, the city has a major problem long term. It's not you just can't so we cannot continue to live where the city goes on bended knee to both levels of government to deal with with budget deficits. Uh, there has to be another way in which we are able to get more money on a regular basis through the tax system without without the city having to go and beg, borrow, and steal from other local governments. And and do you have a favored way? Well, I have some, but maybe it's for another time. There are a couple of a couple of ways. Other cities have been able to. Other cities in other countries have been able to find ways. We need to take tack into the to the income tax system in some way. Um, and th- but 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 that's that's for another time. There are tools and polls, tools rather that can be thought of and and, and they're implemented in other places. So I think actually, if you look at European cities and you also look at some North American cities, but certainly European cities, you'll find that they have a different approach to how local government pays for itself. Yeah, I would think that a a toll is a non-starter with this government. I mean, it was even a non-starter with the liberal government. Yeah, that's unfortunate. If you go to Norway, they toll everything. So... They, I'd love to go to well. Norway. I've been to Norway. It's really, it's it's really really nice. <laughs> there aren't overflowing <laughs> garbage cans. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think I don't know the solution to how we get the city to start funding itself. But I agree with David completely that we need to stop relying on other other levels of government to fund it, and also that what money is being spent on needs to be reprioritized. Um, less money. I think most people would agree that less money should be spent on this gardener project. Oh, wow. And yeah. More money, even just a little bit less money so that you could take that money and put it into things like repairing cracked sidewalks or clearing snow in a timely manner, which the city's getting better at. But, you know, there are people out here falling and slipping and hurting themselves. There are I hate to always keep bringing it back to the garbage, but that's that's it, that's a pet peeve of mine. It's it just it's disgusting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting. And it's been going on for months. I mean, come on, you know, somebody put on your big girl skirt 
and, and deal with it. Get it done. Allocate some resources toward fixing this system of garbage collection from public receptacles that clearly, for whatever reason, just isn't working. Well, yeah. The only thing about what you said there, Lauren, you said we have to stop relying, but it's not up to us. And if anything, this government, uh, you, you know, seems to be taking, I, I, I hesitate to use the word autonomy, but whatever autonomy Toronto might have, this government is taking it, not, not giving more, Karen. Oh, 100%. I mean, they've dictated our planning rules. They've told us what we can charge and not charge in development charges. They've promised to make us whole, but I say us, like they promised to make the city whole, but we don't know how that's going to happen. Like you shouldn't have to beg for something that was taken away. And, um, you know, now that there's, you know, employment conversion requests in front of the city that the minister is hearing directly. So it, it is, the province is slowly undermining the autonomy and the authority of the city and leaving it in a very precarious situation, particularly when the city relied on the housing tax, the land transfer tax for, for housing for most of its budgetary shortfall. And now that we've seen, you know, the, the slowdown of that, of the real estate market, it's having a significant impact in the city. So there really does need to be a reckoning of what are the city's responsibilities? What can we actually pay for with our tax base? What do we negotiate on? Because if, if we're in a hole for re- refugee settlement, there is a question of, wait a minute, why are we doing that? That is a federal government. You know, they're paying for refugees in Quebec to be relocated to Niagara. Why are we, sh- why are we paying that bill on our own? So there's a lot of, you know, really legitimate discussions that need to be had around what we're doing with what we have. And unfortunately, the deputy mayor probably isn't in the best position to do it. But if she can get a little, you know, additional funding for services that we know we need that we can't fund right now, then that would be a win. And she is actually on the line waiting to talk to us now. So I'm going to wrap things up. Thank you so much, David Crombie, Karen Stintz, and Lauren O'Neill. We'll talk again soon. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Jennifer McKelvey, the deputy mayor. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now I would like to welcome Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey. This is the first time we will have an in-depth chat since she took over from John Tory on an interim basis. And I am keen to hear from her. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to chatting with you, too. Okay. Well, first of all, how is it going? It is going really well. Uh, I was, you know, of course, a little worried about coming in on the Tuesday after Family Day and that the office would be deserted and no one would show up. But everybody came in, everybody rolled up their sleeves, and they've been hard at work for the people of Toronto. Is there anything that you have found since doing this for the last few weeks that surprised you or, uh, yeah, that surprised you or took you aback? No, I wouldn't say there was, but I will say that in my previous role as councillor, you know, I focused really in depth on, you know, three key issues. So the ravine strategy, the climate action plan and Scarborough Transit. So the one big transition is, of course, trying to learn all the files that are citywide and uh, expand really the breadth of of what I do here at City Hall. But uh, it's definitely been uh, a learning curve, but everybody has just been really, uh, really spectacular at getting me up to speed on the files. And uh, I've really enjoyed meeting a lot of people in the public service that I haven't met with before. 
Okay, so you sent this open letter to the senior levels of government asking them or calling on them to help fill that gap. Uh, would you see that as the biggest priority? I absolutely do see that as the biggest priority. I would very much like to leave the city in a good fiscal state for the next mayor when he or she arrives on uh, June 26th. Um, but in addition to that, I think it's really just business as usual at City Hall, making sure that we continue to deliver on our city building priorities, that we consider uh, continue to get transit built to expand our public transit, make sure really the nuts and bolts uh, city services we deliver on continue to be delivered and uh, focus on community safety. So with that open letter, uh, have you heard back from any of the levels of government? Have they acknowledged it in any way? We haven't yet, uh, but we are working on trying to book meetings with both levels of government to start to go through its contents. Uh, this is really about dealing with our short-term financial pressures that we have. Uh, we still have outstanding amounts from both last year as well as this year. Uh, and then the, the next part will be really starting the to turn the conversation towards a new fiscal deal for municipalities, not just the city of Toronto, but all municipalities. And we know that our current revenue tools aren't enough. And uh, we know that uh, when Canada was formed 156 years ago, we didn't envision a city of 3 million people and uh, the source of needs that a big city like that would have. Does it disturb you that you haven't heard back from them? No, we just sent it on Monday and, you know, we'll be, it takes some time for these things to move through the chains of bureaucracy. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to them, the the city's financial state, uh, and I'm sure that uh, we can have some very constructive conversations and start to find a, a way forward together. You know, you're talking about revenue tools. I was just talking uh, about that with our tune into the town panel. And I mean, it's pretty clear this government has hampered any kind of autonomy Toronto might have had. And it's pretty clear that that's what they intend to do in the future. So what kind of strategy do you have in the face of that? Well, we have uh, a report that will be coming to Council about uh, our long-term financial frameworks um, and looking at the revenue tools that are available to us. We know that no single one of those revenue tools alone can can get us out of the situation that we're in. I think a part of the, the bigger conversation as well is looking at what are we funding as a city? And a lot of that is things that fall under the purview of the provincial government. So um, I think there's a, a conversation around revenue tools, but also maybe a conversation around what it what services the city is providing providing that perhaps maybe the province should be considering either funding or delivering themselves. Yeah, but they they want to tell the city what to do. I mean, that to me, that's the crux of it. I mean, what is your strategy with that? Are you talking about a negotiation, you know, about this or that item? But I think they have made it very clear that they just want to tell Toronto and other cities what to do and possibly how to do it. Well, there definitely is a, a troubling trend that we see towards that, but we also have uh, um, an audit that will be coming up uh, of the city's finances through Bill 23, and uh, we did say that uh, through that we'd like to have a really broad look at, at all the different services that we're paying and um, you know how we can get some help around things like uh, supportive housing, um, emergency wait times are tying up our paramedics and we need to get them back out in the road. So I think there's a, a lot of conversations to be had and, uh, in two weeks in here and, uh, looking forward to really pushing the, those as far as I can in the next four months while I'm in this role.
You know, one of the things that former mayor David Crombie keeps bringing up is uh, getting infrastructure done, fixing infrastructure. And one of the things that's always been a bit of a bee in the bonnet for me is the way that certain types of, of construction is done. You finish one thing and then you rip up the same piece of street for something else. Mm-hmm. It's it's happening now on College Street, um, which is uh, a main arterial road that people used to get to, to Hospital Row. It they it was a streetcar thing, I think, that just finished, and now there's bike lanes going in. Uh, one of the things your predecessor, Mr. Tory, uh, kept promising is some kind of coordination. It doesn't seem to be happening. Am I wrong? Well, I think uh, we're, we're definitely continuing to, to work on that. It always is a work of program progress. Um, and, you know, sometimes there are things that are unforeseen and uh, we do have to, to unfortunately go back, but we are trying to be as coordinated as possible around these infrastructure projects. I think you're going to see that we're going to try really hard around construction for the Ontario line, for example, to be very coordinated uh, in a better way. And and you also spoke about state of good repair. And uh, one of the things I did do at our budget meeting is ask uh, city staff to report back on our state of good repair projects and how we can uh, really start to to get those under control in a, in a much better way. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the financial difficulties the city is facing have really hampered our efforts around state of good repair. And a good example of that is TTC. When I was elected in 2019, I was so excited. I was on the TTC board and they just came out with uh, their state of good repair plan. I think it was $33 billion over 10 years. And they started to make great strides on that. And, and unfortunately, uh, the pandemic and the financial woes that arose from that have really set us back. So we know we need to uh, get state of good repair uh, really under control in the city of Toronto. And, uh, and certainly, as you said, uh, we do need to continue to do, uh, to do more around uh, coordination of construction projects. Uh, I'm, go- I'm going to get to the thing that everybody is talking about today, which is perhaps not the most important problem in the city, and that was the issue with the sign in the dog park uh, saying that excessive barking will not be tolerated. But here's the thing. It was taken down after a couple of hours. And I, for one, think, wow, you know, if, if we could get other problems dealt with that quickly, it would be great. So uh, was there any direction from the mayor's office on that or did the city staff figure that out on their own? The city staff figured that out on their own immediately, and uh, we did not need to, to get involved in that. Uh, and so when it was brought to my attention yesterday, uh, city staff were already working on removing it. Okay, so it was brought to your attention. Uh, anything else you would like to leave us with? No, just uh, I'm really looking forward to to serving the people of Toronto over the next four months. Um, I would also like to thank all the Toronto residents that have really shown me a lot of support at this time. And I know that it is a big office and there are big shoes to fill. And uh, I know I have to do it my own way, but I'm certainly uh, not afraid of hard work. And I look forward to working for the people of Toronto. And uh, we wish you all the best in that. Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, we are taking another break. When we come back, we'll uh, take another look at those grocery CEOs who were testifying on Parliament Hill last evening. They said they are not making excessive profits on the backs of food inflation. Did you believe them? We will get to that when we come back.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last night, the CEOs of Canada's largest grocery retailers testified on Parliament Hill. Galen Weston, the Loblaw CEO, Eric Laflèche of Metro, and Michael Medline, the CEO of Empire Foods, had one message that despite their hefty bottom lines, they denied profiteering from high food inflation. As a matter of fact, they emphasized that their margins are razor thin. So my question to you out there is, do you believe them? And do you think that other people, other grocery shoppers, believe them? And if not, why not? And do you think that they presented themselves in the right way? There was, I mean, do you think they were arrogant or do you think they came across as, uh, you know, business people who were caught up in this like the rest of us? They did make a few good points. So the food inflation in Canada is lower than it is in the rest of the G7 countries, but there could be good reasons for that. Among them, uh, that, uh, you know, we're not that close to the Ukraine, to Ukraine, and, uh, Europe is undoubtedly more affected by what is happening there. So I would like to hear from you on that. The numbers to call. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And so the question is, did you believe those grocery CEOs? Uh, I have something else to say about uh, the claim from the Loblaw CEO that the profit, a lot of the profit, and they have had absolute record profits, are from things that are other than food, are from the things they sell at Shoppers Drug Mart, uh, cosmetics, and things like that. So my first point is that a lot of those things are staples. You need soap, you need Band-Aids, you need in the winter maybe some lotion, body lotion, stuff like that, because it's very dry in the winter. And it's not even that the prices have been going up in, I think, a very high way, but they're all over the map. They really fluctuate. And I know lately when I go in there, I feel like I'm being played, like how dumb do they think we are? So uh, I'm wondering if that plays into any of it. I'm going to take a call from Mary in Toronto. Hi, Mary. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good. Um, my concern is you have to ask the right question. We have not heard the question as what did the um, Loblaws or the other companies purchase the uh, food at. Don't forget that they have um, warehouses that are stacked with a lot of goods. But I would like to see the cost from the vendor to the store and how that relates to the prices that they charge the consumer. Well, they have said that the price hikes don't match uh, the stacks on their desk that they have of uh, requests for price, hiker, price hikes from suppliers. 
but we haven't really seen proof of that. So I think what you're telling me, Mary, is that uh, barring seeing some proof, you don't really believe them. No, I don't believe them at all. Absolutely not. It's just like the gas prices, they go up because the oil prices, uh, uh, you know, jump the dollar. So automatically the gas station raises, but they have the inventory in their warehouses, which doesn't justify the prices of, you know, uh, going up, Okay, uh, you know, 50, 60 cents per item on some things. Okay, Mary, thank you for that. Well, my next guest in the lead-up to the hearing characterized it as theater. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So if it was theater, first of all, how would you rate the show? And did those executives convince the rest of us? Uh, probably not, but I thought it was informative uh, for me. As someone who watches the industry quite closely, I wanted to get some cues uh, off CEOs in terms of how they support the code of conduct and how do you react to questions and things like that. So um, I think the session was actually quite telling for me. As for people um, who don't necessarily read uh, financial statements, who don't necessarily appreciate the value of data or how uh, supply chain economics work, uh, they, their mind has been made up for a long time. It, been, it doesn't matter if you have Galen Weston saying that they're now ga- that uh, that the company's now gouging or Michael Medline is now gouging. It doesn't matter. People will believe what they want to believe. So the politics of inflation are 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 alive and well, and so that's not going to change. But the facts are pretty clear, as far as I'm concerned. There is no greedflation. It's a mirage. Uh, if you look at the fi- at at our grocer's financial statements, there is no there's there's no sign of abuse at all. Uh, so it, so when when Jagmeet Singh comes in with a stack of papers, he's basically talking to his base, and 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 it's all about politics. Um, they made the point that, uh, or uh, Galen Weston did that that most of the profits are coming from the pharmacy side, from Shoppers Drug Mart. So. Here's what I would say about that. So first of all, a lot of those things are necessities. You need soap and you need Band-Aids, among other things. And it's not just that some of those prices seem to have gone up exponentially, but they're all over the map, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. One day, okay, so I'll give an example. I use cotton thing to take the TV makeup off. It was used to be $2 under the Joe Fresh brand. It went up um, to almost $4. And then the last time I asked my husband to pick some up, it was $5.79, which is crazy. I mean, I don't know of any cotton problem. And it's the same with a lot of other products. I mean, they can call it a sale, but they really fool around with it. Um, I've heard from people who shop on Thursdays for a senior's discount that they'll they'll take a few cents off a product and say, well, you can't get the seniors discount because it's on sale. And I think that contributes to a lack of trust in what they're saying about the groceries. Am I wrong? No, you're not. I would actually go even further. From a regulatory perspective, uh, there's a lot of unfinished business out there. Look at the bread story. Yep. The, the investigation is still ongoing for eight years. We still haven't resolved anything. And so... 
I mean, on the one side, uh, we have 80% of the population um, who believes that uh, grocers are gouging, um, but they have every right to be cynical uh, and they have every right to be concerned because uh, there is a track record. Uh, one thing that wasn't discussed last night that I, I wish would have been discussed is this whole issue of the, of the blackout period. From November to January, vendors aren't allowed to increase prices. They're not allowed to increase prices they charge to, to grocers. Well, what happens, Lily, is that in October, prices are jacked up, and they're, and, and they're jacked up again in February after the end of the blackout. My, my question to CEOs would, would have been about blackouts. How do blackout periods help consumers? Is this just about the industry? And if it is about the industry, well, don't you see this as collusion or some sort of program that is pushing prices higher? Nobody actually asked that question. Well, yeah, and uh, doesn't a lot of this come down to, even with whatever their profit margins are, doesn't a lot of it come down to just a big lack of competition? Oh, th- th- that's the main. So you can invite all the CEOs of the world uh, if you want, but it boils down to one thing. Canada is just not competitive. Uh, it's an, un- it's an attra- unattractive market to invest in. Why do you think Target actually left the market in a hurry? Nordstrom announced it was leaving last week. We lost Lowe's, Sears. I can go on and on and on. It's all about interprovincial barriers, uh, our super cumbersome fiscal regime, our labor laws, labeling laws. I, I mean, I can go on and on and on. There's lots of stuff. We don't have one Canada. We have several markets within Canada, which makes things very expensive for anyone who wants to play nationally. Okay, and it would be presumably better if we had more grocers. I, I, I want to bring something else up, and again, it relates to Loblaw, and and it kind of... So uh, last Friday, I happened to be in TNT Supermarket, which is an Asian supermarket, yep. which Loblaw now owns, oh, yeah. right? In this supermarket, um, the produce was beautiful and the prices seemed reasonable. Now, if I go up to the Forest Hill Loblaws, which is one of their flagships, it's right on a subway station, so it's very convenient, and it's in a wealthy neighborhood. And if you go there, the produce is a disgrace and it's more expensive. And again, why? Well, it's, it boils down to one thing. We need a discount grocer. Uh, discount grocers that we have out there, like No Frills, are part of a conglomerate. Uh, so choice is a problem. Uh, and that's why the code, the discussion about the code last night was a good one, because the code will actually save independence. Look at TNT. They were bought by Loblaws because it was their way out. Uh, it couldn't survive on its own with 35 stores. That's the reality. It same happened to uh, to uh, Farm Boys. Same happened to Longos as well. Fortinos was bought by Longos by by Loblaws a few years ago as well. So you can see that independents are disappearing because of how consolidated the market is, and 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 the code actually would give some hope to independents not selling out to the big players. That's really the key here. 
Right. And and is the strategy that they leave the independent alone for a little while before they start messing with it? <laughs> well, we actually spoke to the Bureau when uh, when uh, Sobeys actually bought Farm Boy and Longos. We actually, both times, we registered our concerns about losing an independent grocer. I could tell that the Bureau had no idea what we were talking about. They had no idea. Because what they'll do is that they'll look at price points, and if they're convinced by the, the, the main player, the player buying the other, that prices won't be impacted... Well, then they they are going to be approving the uh, the deal in the U.S. right now. Kroger's trying to buy Albertson. Congress is all over that one, all over that one. It would never happen in Canada. Well, they... major deals have happened in Canada, and nobody blinked an eye. And that's why we're in the situation we're in now. I I certainly hope I shop at a one-off independent grocer, the largest one in in Toronto, and boy, do I hope that they don't get swallowed up. <laughs> Keep on going. <laughs> keep on keep on going. But so where does this thing shake out? I mean, we still see food inflation much higher than the general inflation rate. Uh, so um, is this just going to be like a one-off thing? They've gone to Parliament Hill and everything goes back to the way it was? Or does anything, especially with this code of conduct, have result from this? It's going to take a while before anything changes, to be honest. Um, I think there's, a, there's, there's no short-term solution. This is a global phenomena, and I want to repeat this to your audience. It's a global phenomena. Canada has one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. I know a lot of people are upset, but we're doing much better than most nations. And so we're dealing with global factors here, making our food prices higher. So we have to be patient with ourselves. And uh, and look at mechanisms to make Canada a more attractive place to invest in, so we can see new players come in. Now, uh, just back to uh, the first question, where uh, you were saying that you do not believe that there is greedflation. So, uh, I have another performance question: Did the CEOs present themselves in a way? Where they might ultimately be able to convince people of that, or do you, did they come across as too arrogant? I actually graded their performance on Twitter, so I gave a. <laughs> I'm a prof. So yeah, I please. Can't help it. But, but I gave a I gave an A to Michael Medline, the the CEO of Empire Sobeys. I gave an A minus to Gail Weston, uh, CEO of Loblaw. But I gave a B to Eric Laflesh. Um, he was 90 minutes away from Ottawa in Montreal. He should have shown up in person, one. And two, if you looked at the session, most of the time he was forgotten. Like he was there, but he was forgotten. He, he actually dodged most of the questions because he wasn't physically there. Well, Sylvain Charlebois, I would have flunked him for not showing up. Exactly. <laughs> Thank well, you so I'm, much. I'm, I'm 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 kinder than you are, I guess. Okay, <laughs> well you, that's it's good. Your show. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, people. Sorry, I couldn't get to all of your calls. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and we are going to take this topic up. And again, um, I want to know if you believe those grocery CEOs, and if not, why not? And if yes, why yes? Was was it a matter that? They produced enough data for you 
to take their word for it. We're going to get into that on Free For All Friday. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.